everybody welcome back to pagan switchy corner my name is pagan and i am joined by the wonderful martellus today who is the author of do i have to wear black uh, rituals customs and funerary etiquette for modern pagans martellus welcome to the show thank you so much i'm really excited to be here and um happy to get to tag on a second book to my name Yay! We'll talk about that at the end because I want to hear all about that. But um, definitely for today's episode is kind of, I don't want to say taboo, but it's one of those topics that I, you don't really see regularly addressed in modern paganism. And that is the associations of death and paganism. Uh, We see kind of more fun aspects of death where it's like oh i'm gonna you know talk to the dead i'm gonna honor my ancestors but the actual acts of death and dying in the funeral and everything else beyond that that's something that's not really addressed so a thank you so much for writing a book about that because the book was fantastic and folks if you haven't already gotten a copy go get a copy because you definitely need it it is a great great book uh but yeah so when it comes to uh death and pagans what does it mean to have to really incorporate death into our practices it's funny i'm reminded by your question of something that misha magdalene author of outside the charm circle which is also an amazing book (laughs) um when i finished do i have to wear black uh, misha read it and and commented to me that um death is really the one job that a faith practice has. And as relatively new practices, modern neo-paganism really started out on this high note, you know, and, and now we're at a point where we have an aging generation that's beginning to die, but they didn't leave us anything behind. Mm-hmm. And sort of piecing that puzzle together and seeing what that needs to be is is not a small feat, let me tell you. But I think that I think that what they said is true. It really is the one job. When we leave out death, then we can't live. I'm really fond of of the book, The Worm at the Core. If you haven't read it, it's it's so worth reading. Um, not a pagan book, but a great book. Um, you know, we joke often that everything a person does in life is is about sex or relationships you're always trying to reach that end goal but that's not really true everything we do is about death Mm -hmm. it's always about our mortality what we're leaving behind what our legacy is and how we'll be remembered we're always trying to subvert mortality and i think that that really to be in a practice that wants to be about living, you have to recognize that living is always about dying. It's always about decay. We're always moving toward death. And the thing about a a death care practice or death work and necromancy as it were, is that it's always gonna be about life because it asks us to reverse the clock, Mm -hmm. to turn around and look back on where we came from and what we have been. It's about, it's about, honoring the fragility of what we have and taking those moments to 
recognize the beauty in dying. It's like a flower is, is a fleeting kind of beauty and it's always, always dying. But we still find that space to appreciate what it is. Yes, absolutely. And it, it's one of those things when it comes to any sort of thing with death, I think a lot of times as humans, and this is anybody from any religious background, it doesn't matter where you come from, um, we don't, we're not comfortable with death. We, we want to live and live life to the fullest. And so it, it's really hard. And I think that's hard why a lot of, and very difficult for a lot of pagans in modern times now to work death into our practice because we're not comfortable with it. And it makes it very, very, very challenging to know what steps we should take. And I think the way that you said that is absolutely stunning and beautiful. And that it's something that we really should be, I don't want to say embracing death, because I don't know if anybody's super comfortable with that. <laughs> but at the same time, I think we really should be aware of it and aware of the fragility of our lives. I think too that, I say this in the end of, of the book I just finished. Um, we need to remember that you know, death is not a hunter. Death is a gatherer. They're patiently waiting for us at the end of a long life lived. They're not pursuing us throughout our days. They're not waiting in every corner to take us. They want us to survive and live and defy them for as long as we can. <laughs> I think that death smiles at every one of us that that just absolutely turns our nose up at dying. If <laughs> healers and necromancers and anyone that challenges death for just a few more moments, I think that that has to put a smile on their face. I think that's a very beautiful way of putting that because it's kind of true. And as you were mentioning that, I was like, it, it really brought um, to mind because I work with Hakate and Hell both. And so they really, it was kind of like feeling them almost smile over my shoulder as you were saying that. And I'm just like, wow, okay, well, I like this. I like where this is going. This is great. <laughs> I think we have, this, we have this imagery of this Grim Reaper with their scythe just a scythe is something you take with, right? It's for mm -hmm. harvesting and, and it's on their terms. And and sure, there's something good to be had from that imagery, but we need to sit back and, and remember that death is appreciating what you have. We have a kind of fragile innocence that that is beautiful in a way that, that only death could appreciate. Mm-hmm. It's like blowing a bubble. Why do it? It's only going to pop. But you, do it, you know, you do it anyway because it's fun and it, it's that childlike innocence that we all have to have because if we are stuck in a state of just being serious all the time, it, it almost really begs the question of what's the point. And I, I think that's that's death, just blowing bubbles and watching our lives be these beautiful shimmering things in the light for just a moment and. And there's, there's a kind of joy in that, I think. Oh, that is stunning. That is a beautiful image. I love that. So in one of our Twitter conversations that we've had over the many threads we've shared together, 
you had mentioned that you would love to talk about tree urns and mushroom burial suits oh my gosh <laughs> how cool they really are uh i basically told my husband the first time i ever heard about a tree urn i was like i don't care how much it costs i don't i make me a tree when i die make me a tree and i told my kids that as well so <laughs> i was like i don't want a casket i want to be a tree <laughs> i'm gonna be so not fun right now <laughs> i feel bad already <laughs> Oh, don't feel bad. It's okay. <laughs> you you so, probably know far more about this than anybody else, but I thought that that was just a really cool thing. So I, I'm definitely excited to hear what you have to say about these and uh, to learn, you know, maybe a little more because you work in that industry. So I, I never failed to meet a pagan person who wants a tree urn or a mushroom suit or green burial or that sort of thing when they die. I'll only talk about the first two because we'll just take up too much time for <laughs> but um, your funeral director is always going to try and talk you out of those. And it isn't because they don't want you to have them. It's because A, they're very expensive. And I do mean very. Um, they are unreasonably costly. Two, um, unfortunately, the companies that make those are notorious for not getting them uh, to families in time. So unless you've arranged for the cost and ordering it way before you die, um, and even still they have to send them at need is what we call it. Like the day you die, the funeral home is gonna let that company know that we need them and your funeral is in two days or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, they're super notorious for just not getting them there on time. <laughs> which is really a bummer. That is a bummer. But the mushroom suits also are pretty notorious for not actually growing, which makes families really sad. Mm -hmm. um, so lots of problems there. But my, my biggest bummer piece of information, I think, is the tree urns. So a tree will grow from it. That's true. Mm -hmm. But when you're cremated... Um, what you leave behind after the cremation process is your bones. Mm -hmm. After the cremation process, we pull out the tray and drag a magnet over it to pull out, you know, casket locks and pants, zippers and that kind of stuff. And what's left is bones, which are ground up in a cremulator, which <laughs> looks like an industrial sized blender. <laughs> okay. it's, literally, it's literally an industrial sized blender. <laughs> Um, so we grind them up and that's what you get back. That bag has no ashes in it. It's just bones. Any ash in there is totally incidental just from like a casket burning or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, bones are almost entirely calcium carbonate. So when you put those cremains, those cremated remains, that's what we call them, mm -hmm. into the bottom of those bio urns, the problem is that trees don't derive any nutrients from that whatsoever. So they don't actually take that material in. Also, uh, yes, okay. at the temperatures at which an individual is cremated, which would be a baseline of 1800 degrees and up to 2100 degrees, um, there's no genetic material left. You cannot DNA test cremated remains, for example. So there's not really much of you for the tree to take in in the first place on an esoteric level. 
If you want to be a tree, the best way to accomplish that would be with the tree pods, which are still kind of a concept mm-hmm. and they are even more unreasonably expensive. Yes. Or to be buried in um, a simple burial container, cardboard, wicker, uh, wood, and buried in an area that is either a, a green cemetery that allows for trees or a burial park that has trees because the tree's roots will actually take up the fluids from a decomposing body. And that actually contains your genetic material and contains meaningful parts of your body. So burial is really the right option if you want to be a tree. (laughs) Well, that's good to know. (laughs) (laughs) That's not fun. I know it's not a fun thing to say. I, I mean, it's one of those things that you don't, when they advertise it, they advertise it as, you know, this is an eco option. This is great. And you're going to be a tree. And then you kind of look at it and hearing what you've said now, it's like, oh yeah, well, if there's too much calcium and the tree's not getting any nutrients with that, or doesn't need the calcium, the tree's not going to grow properly. And then you just don't have a tree. Okay. And so I do die sometimes. Yes. Yeah. So at that point, it's like, um, is it worth it? Probably not. But, uh, I, I would say, what are your thoughts on somebody who wants to be cremated and then just spreading those, we call it, I would say, you know, primarily everyone calls them ash, but um, I guess it's bone, not ash. And so having that, you know, spread around a tree or a park or somewhere else, is that okay for the climate? Absolutely. It's not hurting a thing in the world. Um, So when you are cremated, your bone, the material in cremains, and that's, that is what we call them in the industry is cremains, a portmanteau of cremated and remains. Um, It was determined quite a long time ago, back in the 50s even, that psychologically people were often troubled by the word ashes because it reminded them that their loved one had been burned. Um, So we shy away from the term just to avoid that kind of imagery with someone who's grieving. Mm -hmm. Um, But your your cremated remains are going to be, um, gosh, I mean, they're nigh onto sterile. They've they've been treated at such high temperatures. totally safe. It'd be no different than like throwing a chicken bone in the park after you ate KFC or something. <laughs> Not different. In fact, the chicken is probably worse. <laughs> I was going to say, the chicken's probably worse considering like the grease and everything else. So probably uh... true. <laughs> of course, there are some caveats. Um, there are some very, 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 very rare conditions that um, your uh, cremated remains might still be um, a biohazard risk, mm-hmm. in which case you might be disallowed from scattering them. But those are so rare as to be like front page newsworthy. <laughs> okay, well, that's good to know. I think one thing that that always sort of uh, interests me, just as a as a pagan person, if if we're using the umbrella term, and of course, it's not always the best umbrella term, um, is that there's a sort of perception that burial and embalming and those sorts of things aren't appropriate for us or aren't good for the environment and those kinds of things. And and there's certainly problems in the industry and things that we need to fix. But I also think it's sort of broadly misunderstood. And considering the fact that embalming is derived from ritual practices to begin with, I Mm -hmm. think there's 
so much to be had there for, for pagan individuals. Um, I don't know, that's, that's a topic that, that always intrigues me. The embalming practices go back to the Egyptian times, correct? Really and truly, we could trace uh, embalming practices of a kind or another to basically every culture all around the world for most of history. Um, we we see it in every culture. And, and I think, too, there's this sort of modern idea that embalming is like some ghoulish person injecting chemicals into a body, right? That's, that's sort of the, <laughs> that's what jumps to mind when you think. Yes. <laughs> I always encourage people to remember that embalming is a ritual. Embalming is a practice, not a set of chemicals. Um, embalming means to preserve or to give a good smell, right? So if you light a candle in a smelly bathroom, you have embalmed it. Or if you make a jar of pickles, you embalmed. <laughs> so when we are doing that kind of work behind the scenes, and believe me when I tell you, it's, it's really meaningful work to me, at least. Mm -hmm. You have green embalming fluids, which are essential oil-based, glycerin-based, any other number of things. Um, you can ask that your body be uh, preserved and treated in ways that reflect ancient practices. Um, it could be simply washing and setting of your features, running water through your system, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So there's all kinds of things that can happen behind the scenes other than you know, a bottle of formaldehyde, which is what people think of. Yes. <laughs> and formaldehyde's dangerous. Look, don't, don't get me wrong. It, it is a dangerous chemical, but we also need to understand that we're not like pouring it out in the yard and it's not, it's not like we're injecting pure formaldehyde into a body. <laughs> we have to do a ton of math behind the scenes because you have to figure out the exact weight of a person. Um, the fluid content of their body. And then we are mixing a solution with mm -hmm. water. So your solution tends to be about 8% formaldehyde and the rest is water. Um, really, it's an antibacterial type of situation. The body immediately begins to you know, proliferate bacteria after you die, which can make the body look very unpleasant. And I encourage anybody, anybody at all, who can manage it to see their loved one in the most natural state possible. But that's not great for everybody. Not right. everyone can do that. And when we're talking about, oh, by the end of the first day, you're, you're bloating, you're discoloring, you're developing post-mortem stain, which is all these like pooling purple stains. The tongue is protruding, the eyes are bulging, those kinds of things. In this is not comfortable for everyone. No, it's definitely not a pleasant image, but it's it's one of those things that I think that part of it when we really look at it is, you know, obviously we want our loved ones to be pretty and presentable and all that, you know, like you're saying to make the, you know, everyone comfortable. But at the same time, it's I I have had so many funerals that I've attended in my past where everybody looks almost fake because of the fact that they have so much makeup or, uh, you know, the preservation process has made them look that way and they don't look natural. 
and the ones that I had, the funerals that I have attended that they were not like that. Yeah, they looked a little ghoulish, but at the end of the day, it's like they've also passed. So I can understand the two and I, I completely understand what you're saying, but I am definitely of the mindset that I would never want to look fake if I had an open casket. <laughs> I think too, and this is really important for people listening to remember is that we've all had that experience where we went to a funeral and somebody was like two inches deep in foundation and like smelled like a bottle of Lysol and it was all weird, right? <laughs> you have to remember that um, we have an aging funeral industry that consists largely of uh, straight, cis, white males uh, now broaching their 70s and 80s. Um, these are very outdated practices we're talking about. Today, the broadest swath of incoming death care worker students um, are women and LGBTQ individuals. And these are people who are really bringing new schools of thought into the work. People who have a very real understanding of how to use makeup and how to treat the body in a way that is not whatever that was. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> <laughs> I would not want like a 70 year old Baptist man doing my makeup if I was alive. <laughs> so Same. Talk oh, about that yeah, second. no, that, that would be <laughs> a highly traumatic experience. <laughs> right, so just think about, don't think about what the body looked like and compare the practice to that. Remember what the funeral director looked like and that they did that makeup. <laughs> <laughs> remember that part that's important I'm out there with like my MAC cosmetics and an airbrush I'm doing right by y'all <laughs> I love it so much that's so great <laughs> no I think I think it's really important to remember that if you haven't planned ahead for your funeral and let me ask you right now you for real mm -hmm. do you have um an advanced directive or a will I don't and it's funny because being chronically ill, you'd yeah. think that I would. And every time I turn around, I'm like, you know, I need to actually get on this. But, you know, I'm, I'm 36. So it's like, oh, I don't need one. And then I realize, but I'm chronically ill. I might need one. Oh. And it, especially in today's world, you might need one because and of the state of the world. And how about this? Do you have um, a healthcare power of attorney or have you pre-planned or paid for a funeral or like just made arrangements and stuff? I have a, uh, my husband is my power of attorney and sure. followed by my son. And then uh, from there, as far as prepaid for a funeral, no. Uh, but they do know what my funeral should look like. Okay, so let's imagine that tragically you died right now today your next of kin your spouse would have to decide everything by tomorrow morning in their grief they would be deciding all of those things in this moment and let's say they can only afford to do the very cheapest thing available to them mm -hmm. and they have a direct cremation they're still looking at in my state um around eleven hundred dollars and these are things that you have to plan on the fly. It's, it's so cruel to imagine to me, leaving like, leaving your friends and loved ones with the idea that you want things like mushroom suit and a green burial and 
all these things, but you've left them trying to figure them out for you. Mm-hmm. And it's expensive and frustrating. You know, planning ahead is really important if you want anything unusual, but we also like to imagine that we're going to die in a really peaceful way in our 80s in our bed at home, right? Looking perfect and pink like Betty White, I imagined it. I know <laughs> Betty White did. I mean, what, what, let's just give a shout out to Betty White, wherever she may be, shout whatever out. afterlife she chose. Um, okay. so I, I hope she died that know. way. I hope she died in her bed beautifully. Exactly. But we don't all die that way, right? Right. And maybe you you get into a car wreck. Knock on wood. Mm-hmm. Or not. And if a person dies before a reasonable age for dying, let's say 70 or so, depends on your neck of the woods and what your coroner thinks about it, you're getting an autopsy, period. Because it is considered unexpected and unnatural, right? Mm-hmm. So here you are with an autopsy, and if they had to arrange for your autopsy out of state, which could happen depending on how close to a border you lived or how overworked your state is, you must be embalmed if you cross state lines Mm -hmm. by some method. Now, if you want a green burial and you want your loved one to prepare you for your funeral and all those things, that's awesome. But we're also talking about a situation now where you're asking them to pick you up in that state. If you are not in great condition, that is such an awful thing to to put on your loved ones. Mm -hmm. So I always ask people to be compassionate in their death planning. Think about what you want and plan for it in a way that won't leave painful, difficult chores for the people that love you most when you die, but also leave a backup plan just in case that Mm -hmm. green burial doesn't work out be sure to write down that it's okay if they have to take another route because you don't want them to feel like what they had to do left you unhappy yes that is very valid information that you know i think a lot of times we don't think about it i think even right now with the state of the world and you know the pandemic and all of us we're just trying to make it to tomorrow um but i think also we're not realizing that the death industry is probably a little overwhelmed i I, from an outside perspective i would assume they would be a little bit overwhelmed with everything that's been going on and so um go on and on about that but it's it's terrible out there it's it really is suffice to say pick a funeral home in your town and take them a box of donuts because it's it's rough mm-hmm. <laughs> it's real bad be nice to your death workers everybody because they're they're hurting just as much as our health care workers you don't even really think about it until you know you have to think about it but that that's definitely one of those things that uh when it comes to where we are right now and everybody being going to talk about like it's 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 been just miserable and it's funny too it's not fun it's not haha funny it's like it's you have a dark sense of humor funny (laughs) i finished mortuary school not long before this pandemic started i mean i'd been doing death care work for ever you know Mm -hmm. decades but um i had just started 
uh, taking my funeral director's degree and stuff at that, you know, a few years back. So here I was finishing that. And like the idea is that you finish and you go into an apprenticeship and that's the whole process, right? You have a mm -hmm. residency and such. But instead, what happened was the Department of Health and Human Services went, hey, everyone, including like you just started today, students, like everybody, um, you're doing this now. And it's you're thrown into volunteering or, or doing these things that you, you know, barely have your head above the water over. Like I was luckier the most given my past experience, but I have been working volunteer only since March of 2020. I haven't drawn a single paycheck. And it's sort of like, this is what you're doing and this is what you have to be doing. And when we're out there, it's it's not like you're a nurse helping out in another town. Nobody's covering your travel or meals or somewhere to sleep. No one is making sure you have a mask to wear or gloves to put on your hands. I've been in situations where I've seen people wearing trash bags for gowns with bandanas tied over their face, gloveless, sleeping in hallways in the morgue. Like it's totally dystopian. Like working 24 seven for two weeks in volunteer spots was like not even knowing where they'll be able to eat if they're hungry. It's, it's nuts. It's really nuts. That's disturbing at the, the very least. Um, but wow. And you, most normal people who wouldn't know anybody in the, you know, death industry wouldn't even know that because it's not publicized anywhere. Nope. No, it is not. Wow, that's so. I'm so sorry, y'all are going through that. Damn. <laughs> I have I have so many friends out there, and and I take. I'm getting text messages from from friends in the industry all hours of every day. Just like I am burning out, and I can't do this anymore because it's so hard, mm -hmm. and so thankless. Weird situations like even the dumbest stuff. Isn't it the dumb things that just totally break you? Yes, right. Absolutely. <laughs> I remember last year in like it was sort of at the height of a particular wave and everybody was pretty burnt out. And it was like Starbucks had done that promotion where healthcare workers could like get one free drink or something. Mm -hmm. And they were like, by the way, but not you though. <laughs> And that was like the thing that broke so many, so many morticians I know, like they just could not even get a coffee. And it was like, why, <laughs> why do you hate us? <laughs> and I, you know, it's one of those things that we really don't think, you know, we, we don't put morticians or any death workers or anything like that in with our healthcare workers, but you guys really are part of the healthcare industry because you're taking over where somebody is trying to keep them alive and you're like okay well they've died now I'm going to take care of this because we don't want the body to infect anybody else or you know fun. contaminate anything if need be um, fun, fact. Uh, fun fact we are literally healthcare workers we are classified as such by the federal government and um, we're also classified as emergency response workers huh but people don't know that. And then you sort of get like the raw end of the deal. Well, uh, friends who are listening to the show, spread that far and wide. Appreciate yeah. your morticians and your death workers and make sure that everybody is 
acknowledging them and thanking them and realizing that they are part of our healthcare industry, which is not in great shape, by the way. Um, so appreciate your healthcare workers and appreciate everyone from one end of the spectrum to the other end. So true. I, I always say that the front line is a circle. When someone falls through, we're there to catch them. Mm -hmm. We hope the doctor makes everything right and you get to go home to your family. But if they can't, we're going to give you a safe landing. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> care a lot about the, the families I get to care for. That's a really incredible message. Wow. Oh, such a moving thing. Um, well, bringing it back from the mundane to the more magical side of things, um, I know that you, uh, in your book bio, uh, call yourself a necromancer. And I have seen a lot of other people call themselves necromancers. But for someone who does not practice necromancy of the modern sort, and they hear necromancer the first time, the first things that a lot of people think is, oh, Skyrim necromancers which is silly <laughs> i'll take it <laughs> it's a silly thing to think about but at the same time uh modern necromancy is not a practice that's really talked about in mainstream circles of paganism so well, I, if you could I, explain that to somebody well i'd like everyone listening to know that i'm wearing my skull pauldrons and I have like a skull bikini on and glowing <laughs> green and purple. <laughs> That's the image, right? <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Like I always think between of a hooded, like a black hooded person and a hag raven. That's like the two that came to mind with that. <laughs> oh See, I always sort of harken back to the words of Daniel Ogden in Greek and Roman necromancy, which is a book I'm very fond of. It's a, a little bit academic, but if that's your thing, it's super cool. Mm -hmm. um, there were points in history where necromancy would not be a word used distinguish, distinguishably from any death magic. Anytime, anytime I say I practice necromancy, there's always some nerd hearts to everybody who was this nerd. <laughs> it's like, well, actually, necromancy is divination through the use of you know the dead or whatever mm -hmm. and then someone else will, will interrupt them and mansplain or something that <laughs> actually that's theomancy because nobody's working with corpses it's actually theomancy is divination with shades and ghosts and stuff <laughs> historically necromancy would have been used to mean anybody doing any kind of death magic mm -hmm. really pretty broad and that's how I use it as well but I think we all sort of get hung up at the same point in history about the 1500s <laughs> up until there necromancy was such an ordinary part of practice that it's really a better question to ask why aren't we all doing that now right um, because it seems kind of weird that we're not doing that but you know, Catholics like their things to be their things. And despite the fact that they're doing the fucking weirdest necromancy ever, pardon my my French, everyone. Oh, no, you you're welcome bleep. to cuss on the show. You I can bleep the show. Me. Okay. Nope. We, we all cuss. It's cool. <laughs> well, the fucking weirdest necromancy comes out of Catholics. So let's just talk about it. 
we have like bedazzled corpses and I don't know what cosmic joke it is to have Galileo's middle finger bone on permanent display but here we are (laughs) so wow (laughs) Catholics are just like doing some shit over there with with corpses they're like this person is a saint so we'll go dig them up and sniff them to see if they smell like flowers and then we're just gonna cram them in a glass box for everyone to poke out with a stick that's weird right yeah that that's weird that that is definitely weird and probably you know in today's world 50 shades of illegal it's definitely (laughs) but nevertheless so air quotes pagans of the time thought this stuff was fucked up it was definitely weird compared to what they were doing, which was, you know, ancestor worship and more sort of service-oriented death magic. Necromancy at particular points in history, and everyone listening should know that I'm I'm relying on extremely European white people basis for, for anything I say. I, I try and stick in my lane, stay there real hard. Uh, most of my practices derive from early Greek practices. Um, arguably but that aside um, your friendly neighborhood necromancer in ancient Greece was not really that different from your modern day mortician if they also happen to be a witch Mm -hmm. we're talking about people that served their communities helped families process recent deaths uh, cared for the recently deceased prepared bodies for burial really took care of families and did the magic that they needed in those times and mm-hmm. continued doing the kinds of magic that helped them talk to the dead and give to the dead. So it does take a hard turn left somewhere around, you know, Catholic fuckery. Mm-hmm. What happened was a bit of a propaganda campaign, if you want to be honest about it, where it was kind of like what we're doing is good and nice with our weird like finger bone magic or whatever. And what these people, these people are doing <laughs> is not actually uh, necromancy probably. They're not actually talking to the dead or saints and stuff. They are summoning demons who are pretending to be their dead loved ones. And that sort of became the the party line for a while. You most of the grimoires that you see today that focus on the topic of necromancy were written by popes, priests, very prominent Catholics. And that's where you get all the really baddie stuff too. Right. Then that sort of trickles down into like 1800s era, like Levy and Dee and Francis Barrett and they're all like I'm still a white guy Catholic and I have some strong feels about stuff and I'm only doing the good kind of necromancy so cool (laughs) (laughs) um literally Elvis Levy says at a point I believe in transcendental doctrine don't don't quote me on that I might be wrong as hell but it's one of those (laughs) says that there are two kinds of necromancy, the, the good and the bad, and sort of defines the difference between them. The, the, the good kind is, you know, prayers and in, invocations, and the bad kind is, you know, blood and burning incense and, and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, cool. <laughs> and then we see things like 
Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. When we see a book like that come out, it sort of science fictionalizes um, working with the dead and it's very ghoulish and we're reanimating someone. And that leaves us with certain kinds of ideas as we trickle into like later 1950s sci-fi and B movies, mm -hmm. which by the time we have things like Dungeons and Dragons begins to look a very particular sort of way. Yes. So everything those fabulous Catholics did to like super cool Greek necromancers just continued to get worse. So I would say that I'm not really that different from any witch who does death care work and works primarily with the dead. I'm just using a word accurately about it. That is very valid. And that's something that I think that we should be talking more about because of the fact that we really should start separating where some of the old magic kind of got lost because of the spread of Christianity. Exactly. And bringing it back to its original life. Um, obviously, we're not going to be practicing it exactly the same way because, you know, we don't do things the way that, you know, we would have in, you know, 14th, 13th, 12th centuries. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, when it, you start to really look at how it was then and then how you can adapt it to the modern era, that's something that I think that we really should be looking at because, a lot of that's going to eventually get lost and we may never find it again once it's lost. Well, and I, I, that's something that we shouldn't lose. I, I always say to people that they should really pause and think about the fact that in necromancy and death work, death magic is really kind of the last bastion of othering and sort of superstition and taboo within pagan communities, even perpetrated by pagans themselves. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm using that umbrella term so broadly, just like bear with that. But I think that if everyone paused for a moment to realize that all those weird oogie feelings they have about it are absolutely things that were drilled into their heads by Catholics and Christians and, and, and those sorts of things that, that you might sort of reassess your position on it. Mm -hmm. I teach a, a class pretty often on reading spirit boards and I, I talk a lot about the practice. And one thing that always surprises people, always, never fails to surprise, is that you can't find a single reference to uh, spirit boards or Ouija boards uh, being something people were scared of or concerned about or nervous about prior to a single day. Do you know what that day was? Mm -mm. The release of The Exorcist in theaters. Oh, yes. An entire generation of, you know, aging house parents went, those are very scary, taught their children to believe that, and we have carried it into now. Prior to then, it was such a common, ordinary, wholesome family activity that Norman Rockwell painted a couple playing Ouija for the cover of the Saturday Evening Post for the May issue. Think about that. Or a spring issue. You know, just spending your Saturday evening with, you know, your significant other talking to the dead. Right. It was such a... <laughs> It was such an ordinary activity. 
And I think it should be an ordinary activity. And, you know, that's kind of one of the things that um, Kyle and I talk a lot about on Chaos and Shadow is about the destigmatization of spirit boards, all spirit boards and divination tools in general, because when it comes to the spirit board, it's literally just a board and you're basically the conduit for the energy as far as we've known that that's the way that that's supposed to work. Um, and it, if you're the one who is freaked out and, you know, saying, oh, it's going to be a demon. Yeah, you're probably going to talk to something that's not very nice or that's going to masquerade as that because you've invited that. But ultimately, if you go into it and be like, hey, I just want to sit down and talk to something or anyone who's willing to talk to me and just have a conversation, it's usually a pretty fun time. I could I could go down like an entire rabbit hole about uh the kinds of experiences people have with those boards and um well working with the dead in general and sort of how that relates back but that would take up all our time we'll have to do this again sometime <laughs> we'll have to have just a ouija board conversation <laughs> yes we'll do that again soon. but i would say this and i i say this often and i really hope your listeners will take this to heart the dead are still human after all Imagine that you're standing in your local neighborhood Walmart or something, some crowded place filled with probably not enjoyable people that you'd want to spend your time with. <laughs> of all the people standing in that building, probably none of them are a Ted Bundy, by which I mean someone truly evil. Mm -hmm. And probably none of them are a Florence Nightingale either, by which I mean someone truly benevolent. Everyone is some shade of gray, just lonely and selfishly inclined and just trying to get by and exist and do the best that they can. Mm -hmm. The dead generally want the same things that you want. And I do think that they generally are well-intended. Well-intended doesn't always work out, but I do think that's worth considering. The odds of you encountering something truly malevolent are so vastly slim as to be silly to worry about. Yes, I completely agree with that. And I think that the other thing, too, is whenever you come across someone that is from the other side, wherever they may be, whatever form they may be in, you know, you just really have to kind of go back to that whole thing of if you're going to treat them like shit they're probably going to turn around and treat you like shit or not talk to you at all but i think that harkens back to our walmart analogy if yeah. you're you know, crappy to the person at the checkout line they're going to be crappy back because absolutely why, would, why wouldn't they be right <laughs> i mean you don't want to go into you know any conversation with any entity of any shape or form whether they be human on this side of the plane or the other side don't go into them treating them like crap you wouldn't they probably you wouldn't treat your you know person at walmart like crap at least you shouldn't be because if you are then shame on you that's bad you're the bad guy that's <laughs> <laughs> you're the bad guy don't treat them like crap they're just there to do their job or their paycheck and go home they don't want to be treated like crap and they're not going to treat you like crap if you are nice to them they're going to do their all, best to be nice to you. 
we've all had that piece of advice, right? If you go into an experience with a negative attitude, you're probably going to have a negative experience. Mm -hmm. And that works two ways. I mean, just like going into a conversation with a living person with a bad attitude will not turn out well. I mean, the same is true of the dead. They yes. have opinions and feelings. <laughs> They're still people. It's so very, very true. So I'm always telling people, don't forget that they are people. That's mm -hmm. such a, that, I think that's such a basic fundamental comment that gets lost. It's like, you know, your, your loved one dies, you sit by grandma's bedside and they pass away and you're very sad and you wish they could have hung on a little longer. But if at midnight, the same day you saw them in the hallway, it'd be frightening. You might consider it something scary to be rid of. And what is the difference between grandma alive and grandma dead? What fundamentally changed? corporeal body that's about it correct so let's all remember that the dead are somebody's you know grandparent absolutely beautiful message that you know we can definitely take away with this and you know for any listeners out there if this is something that you're interested in if you're interested in learning more about necromancy or death work or any of that definitely go and pick I would say start if you're going there it's a long road because with any sort of paganism you should always do all your research but start with Mortellus's book because you are going to get a wealth of information about all the ways that we should be practicing our death customs as pagans so I did want check that out everyone I did want to take a moment to say something I'm pretty excited about Yes, please share all of your projects, anything that, you know, you want to talk about that you can talk about. I know some authors, when they've got projects in the work, they can't talk about it because it's still in the works with uh, publication. Uh, but yeah, tell us everything that you've got going on because we would love to follow all of your work. So my my first book, of course, is a, it's a reference sort of book and it talks about how to plan for death and how to host and manage um funerary rituals and rites for your loved ones and it's a great book if you are in the position of being clergy or someone who has a loved one who could die or if you're someone who could die so it's for everyone but my next book I just got the release date which is September 8th is titled The Bones Fall in a Spiral A Guide to Necromancy and the Magic of Death and it is really a handbook start to finish of, of what my practice looks like. And I hope it will be meaningful to someone out there. It has a comprehensive spell book and set of rituals that I think anybody could get something out of. But it also delves into a lot of topics about the dead and classifying incorporeal entities and sort of figuring out communicating and, and who you might be talking to, which I think is very useful for anyone in the paranormal field or mm -hmm. who works with hauntings or the dead and in, in any sort of meaningful way that sounds incredible i literally just made a note of that and that is going to be on my list to pick up this fall you said that's coming out in september it is and in fact i happen to know that it's already hiding on amazon for pre-order if you search for it <gasps> yay and that's going to be through llewellyn again yes awesome it doesn't, it doesn't have any like it's not a full page on amazon but it's up there 
That's okay. We always look forward to that. So if you want to go ahead and get your pre-orders in right now, you guys can go over to Amazon and get those in. And if not, as it gets closer to September, obviously they will populate the Amazon page a lot more. Um, sure. And it'll have the pretty cover design and the, your synopsis and all that good stuff you, so you can pre-order that. Or if you're somebody that likes to wait till after the, it's fully released, wait till September and it will be out. I'm sure we will have more Tell Us Back before then because I definitely want to have a conversation about the magic of Ouija boards and why we should be using them. Uh, so we'll definitely have to have you back by for that because that's going to be a good time. I would like that very much. <laughs> well, Martellus, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, everyone, please go check out Martellus. Oh, before we let everybody go, where can they find you? Do, do you have Instagram? I know you have Twitter, uh, but do you have do Instagram you have, and TikTok, any of that good stuff? I have Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find me any of those places by searching A Crow and the Dead or Martellus. Uh, on Facebook, I have a group called A Crow and the Dead, which is a fun little place to talk about death and necromancy and ask questions and share silly memes with the Grim Reaper in them, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do have a website at mortellus.com, and I encourage everyone who might be looking for a small way to get involved in death and this pandemic to go check out fundthefuneral.com which is a website where you can donate directly to funerals that family have families have posted. Think about it like a GoFundMe with no middleman. You're directly contributing to their nice. exact funeral. So Very nice. And you also make candles and stuff, don't you? I do. I have a shop on my website where I sell handmade candles, which they're all ritual candles, which I also think are lovely. So they're like necromantic bath and body works. <laughs> 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 but they don't but, smell like dead bodies everybody they smell divine from everything i've seen <laughs> they do have a unique feature though they're all wood wick candles and i cut the wicks from used caskets oh yes, that's for, neat formerly formerly occupied by by a body caskets um i've also got all kinds of necromantic ritual goods there incenses corpse water spell kits and other fun stuff so awesome. i'm all about responsibly sourced sustainable ethical necromantic goods people need a place to find things that they they can trust the source of so i, I try and make that available that is great that is absolutely great uh so everybody make sure you go and follow mortellis they are a beautiful human you need to go follow them on twitter pick up a copy of their books make sure you pre-order the next book coming out. You also pick up a copy of Do I Have to Wear Black and follow all of their amazing stuff through all of their social media stuff, which will be linked in the bio. So thank you everybody for joining us today and we will see you all next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye everyone.